Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to episode 129. So today our guest is Chantal Jovan. She is an international corporate attorney. Her expertise is in trade law and financial services, and she's worked with Fortune 500 companies from around the world, dealing with matters around free trade zone manufacturing in Costa Rica to fast-moving consumer goods in Europe. She's also an author, and she's here to talk about her new book, Love Without Martinis, How Couples Build Healthy Relationships in Recovery Based on Real Stories. Now, this book comes out of her own challenging experience of being the partner in a relationship with her husband who was struggling with alcohol. As she says in the interview, it is the book she wished she had at the beginning of this journey of understanding and growing while loving someone who is in their own recovery. So she worked to share her wisdom of healing through the stories of real couples going through the same experience. So Chantal and I talk about her experience, how she got to this book, how she was able to get other couples to talk about their experience and share their wisdom of what they learned about going through this experience. Chantal is very hopeful about the future and just shares her hard-won wisdom in her book. So stay tuned. Hello, Chantal. Thank you for coming to the Addicted Mind podcast. I'm excited to talk about your book, Love Without Martinis. But before we start, I want to know a little bit about you and your story and how you got to this book. Hello, Dwayne. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So as you said, my name is Chantal Jovin, and I come from Canada. So you will hear a little French accent here and there. I currently reside nice. in Philadelphia. My career has been mostly as an attorney. It's been a lot of fun. I've had the opportunity to work and live in places such as Cambodia and Russia and Vienna because I've practiced uh, international trade law and then financial services. My last position was with uh, Western Union as general counsel, which is what brought me to the U.S. Their head office is in Denver, Colorado, and uh, I eventually became general counsel and was moved to their head office. Beautiful place, Denver. <laughs> oh, awesome. Wow. So you've been all over, had all kinds of experiences. 
and started this journey of recovery somehow and, and got there. So tell me a little bit about your story and how that all evolved and what went on and how you got to this book. <laughs> yes. Uh, my journey of recovery actually first started by meeting the man that I fell in love with that would eventually become my husband. He also was working for Western Union. He was the president of Western Union. We were both working in Denver. Fortunately, he left the company and our friendship was able to bloom into a romance. We were cycling together, motorcycling, and decided that we wanted to have a new, fresh start together. And so we basically just decided to move to the East Coast because it was closer to our families in Canada. And we chose Philadelphia. Bill is also Canadian. He's also lived in places like Argentina and Paris. So we had this commonality of an international global life together, or separately, sorry, when we came together. So we chose Philadelphia, enthused about finding new positions and starting afresh. What I didn't know is that Bill had a dark secret. He was relying on alcohol to get through his days. He was very functional with it. As you can imagine, as a senior executive, he was entertaining clients, closing deals over cognacs and cigars. And uh, I just didn't know. I, I hear that a lot with a lot of partners that, you know, they their partner is really a functional alcoholic, very successful. They can do really well, but this kind of, it's in the background. It's there. Right. And... You know, the word alcoholic is one that I have, uh, I struggle with because it tends to define the person. And I would not define Bill sure. as an alcoholic. In my mind, he had, um, you know, he was, uh, he has a substance use disorder and he was relying on the alcohol to, um, to go through the challenges he was facing. And he had many. We have to put it in context. We had just moved across the country. He had retired as president of a Fortune 500 company. He had had an acrimonious divorce. And when all of this happened, all of this happened, we moved to Philadelphia. And then his mother became quite ill. And so we left Philadelphia after living together for not even two months to be with his mother in Canada, um, who was, um, you know, who eventually died. It took her two months of fighting her own disease. So we come back to Philadelphia and this man that I have seen as an executive who's very athletic, I do not recognize him. And I do what I think a lot of us who love someone who struggles with alcohol is I, in my mind, I make a lot of excuses. He is grieving, right, he has right. life changes. And I was not familiar with um, addiction. I was fortunate enough that I had not encountered it firsthand in my life, but it also left me completely blindsided. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, you're seeing this kind of develop, you're seeing this in him happening, but you don't know how to put it into context. You can't see it. It's it's hard to know. And Well, and... In a way, I didn't see it. And I'm sure my story is like that of many people, is that because he was so functional, what I did see is our relationship went from this wonderful open relationship. We were going to travel and cycle on our vacations in France. We were going to start our careers in Philadelphia. We um, just bought a wonderful home. But what was also happening inside our home was there was all this arguing, which had never happened before. I discovered he was lying to me, which was a complete shock. Right, yeah. So the behavior was changing, and I just thought it was a phase. I thought he would grieve, and I began to change as well. Instead of going on with my life, being very independent, I've lived all over the world. I'm also very adventurous and athletic. I became so focused on him. I was going to save him. I was going to get him back on track. 
and I'm sure the story sounds very familiar to you and your listeners, is when you love someone who's in addiction, all of a sudden your world just closes in and all you can think of is how you're going to get them to stop drinking. Right. Yes, definitely. I mean, you're, you're starting to see it and, it and it builds to that point where you kind of recognize it. Um, before we get to that part, can we talk a little bit about this part in between where you're not sure, you think maybe it's a problem, you're starting to come to that recognition of like, this is an issue. I, I think that would be important because I think a lot of partners of someone who has a substance use disorder goes through that phase and it's really difficult. It is. I think what happens the first step, and I saw this in the other couples that I interviewed for my book, is first you're looking for an explanation. And in my case, the explanation was grief, big life changes. And so I thought if I just loved Bill enough, uh, if I just made new friendship, if I opened up our world in Philadelphia, he would go through his stages of grief and he would show up. Right, And I think that what happens in that period is, for me, was there's a lot of self-doubt because it wasn't happening that way. I had the story in my mind of how this was going to work out, but it wasn't. And what I saw was instead there was more arguing. I felt like I knew him less and less. He used to love to go motorcycling, and his motorcycle battery was dead because it wasn't even charged from being unused. We used to entertain a lot, and when I would mention, let's have some friends over, there was always some excuse. And so I was not sure if I really knew him, and I also wasn't sure what to do. And I didn't see some of the drinking because he was hiding it. And so I, all I saw was that maybe I just made the wrong choice. Maybe this was, was not the man I thought. And also, I wasn't happy with my own behavior, how I was becoming so enwrapped in him. Uh, and right. I was, and you don't know all what's going on. If he's hiding it, you, you kind of have this, you're left with not the whole picture. Right. You, I was thinking I was a very understanding, compassionate person. But my patience was wearing thin. And fortunately, the universe contrived so that I was no longer able to deny what was happening. And I did have that aha moment of there's something beyond grief here. And what happened in that moment is that in my effort to have Bill go through his grief process, I said, let's sign up for a cycling event, a century, which is a hundred mile ride. So you have to train for it. Exactly. So we put together this training program and part of it was every morning we would juice, you know, we'd make fresh juice and he was responsible for that. So one morning, very early pre-training ride, 6 a.m., I come to the kitchen. There's our two glasses of grapefruit juice he's made. And by sleight of hand, I pick up the wrong glass. And I take a big slurp, and I literally just spit it all over the kitchen sink. It must have been three-quarters vodka and a little smattering of grapefruit juice to color it. And that would have been shocking. <laughs> that would have been like, wow, that's you, you, you can't deny that that's right there. Exactly. And he was not in the kitchen at that moment. And what I chose to do was quickly clean it up because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to confront yeah. him. I, I didn't, I just didn't know. And what ensued was probably a week of the cat and mouse game where I was sniffing his coffee and, oh, there was Kahlua on his coffee in the morning. I started checking the bottles and the cognac was going down at night. I think it's very typical of people who love someone who is unable to control their alcohol. That's how we think of it. That's not what it is. But in that moment, in my understanding of what was happening, Bill was not controlling his drinking. I was not aware of substance use disorder. I was not aware that he was struggling with the disease. 
but I knew something wasn't wrong, something was not right, I'm sorry, about all this alcohol. Yeah, yeah, and I would imagine, you know, that kind of hypervigilance to everything that's going on is just eating at you too. It's kind of taking your life away. It is. And it was taking our relationship away. Our intimacy wasn't there. I didn't feel like I could trust him anymore. So what I did, I really did care for him. And I had this, this storyline in my head of this great life we would have together. And I wasn't willing to let go of that. What I did, as I said to him, let's go to relationship counseling. And so if mm-hmm. my thinking was, if I'm the problem, it will come out. If he's the problem, it will come out. But hopefully what will come out is that there's a problem with the alcohol and the counselor will be able to have a conversation with him about it. Right, right. And fortunately, that's how it played out. It took a few sessions, but... Uh, Dr. Perrymore, at the end of one session, reached over and handed him a phone number and said, you know, Bill, this is the phone number of a, an addiction specialist, and I think you need to have a conversation with him. Wow. So he really just got confronted and kind of put in his face. And and I think that sometimes, a th- you know, a therapist or a coach or whatever can can do that better than in a way, a partner, you're kind of lost in that and, and they can kind of see it. But I guess that was a big moment. It was. And let's be honest, my behavior wasn't the best either because I had become so embroiled with him. I'd become defensive. I'd become argumentative. I was now nagging him about his drinking. I was now making the threats of, I'll leave you all of this typical emotional wrangling that happened. And so it was easy also for him to point to my behavior as being stressful for him right. or not compassionate and understanding. And I think the, what happens is when you have a third party that comes into the conversation, they're able to bring perspective and able to um, ask the right questions that aren't as emotionally charged as the "you have to stop drinking or I'm leaving you." <laughs> uh, right, right. So he goes to rehab and he does that. And I, I would imagine that's just the the first step in the journey here. <laughs> that's just the first step. It is, and and I was very fortunate that Bill, although it took him uh, only a few weeks for him in the conversation with this addiction counselor to understand he needed to go to treatment. Of course, those few weeks for me seemed like an eternity. (laughs) But uh, it was the beginning of our journey. When he went to treatment, he went to Karen Karen, um, Treatment Centers in Vernersville, for which I'm very grateful, because they also had a family education program. And so I had access to counselors and started my own education about what was happening, that Bill was suffering from a disease, that it had affected our relationship, that he would not be able to drink again, uh, that there would be sobriety in the early stages is very difficult because there's sobriety and then there's recovery. And you have to start with sobriety, but recovery would be a long process. Yeah. So that when Bill came home from treatment, he had a treatment plan. So, and he was great. He was like the poster child. You know, he did his 90 days, his 90 meetings in 90 days. But being a good executive, he had to do it a little bit his own way, which was, well, it wasn't <laughs> in one meeting a day. Some days it was two meetings and some days there were no meetings. And that was difficult because, of course, I was um, trying to give him his space to do what he needed to do. But when he chose not to go to a meeting one day, I would be, oh, is everything okay? And so I had to learn to focus on myself. And I had to learn Mm -hmm. to let him be in charge of his own recovery, but be supportive of him. And he was well surrounded and he chose a fellowship. Now, some people don't choose fellowship. He chose a fellowship. And he had a sponsor and a treatment plan. And so he was well surrounded and I had to trust that process. And I would imagine that's, that's hard to do because you you love this person. Mm -hmm. You really, 
want them to get better. You want the relationship to get better. And I would just imagine that that is really challenging to be in that space. Well, it is. It, it is also when you don't fully understand what is happening and it's all new to you. So I also hired my own therapist for the first time in my life. And that's even just dealing with that, accepting that I also needed help was a, a huge personal challenge. Now, I, I've been living on my own since I was 18, put myself through law school, had an international team. And all of a sudden, I had to look in the mirror and say, I need the help of a professional to help me understand what is happening to us and what is happening to me. And how I I need help to deal with this. That was not easy. Yeah, I, I would imagine. In some of the research I was doing about you and, and your story and everything like that, you also talked about how at this time you, you're reading all these different books and you're reading all these things and you're, and you're looking for all these resources and what you were looking for about the coupleship wasn't really there. Like you didn't find it. It was difficult to to get to. Yeah. So we have to also put it in the context that uh, my my husband now has celebrated 12 years of recovery, which is fabulous, just in February. But step back 12 years ago, it was not um, as openly discussed. Recovery wasn't as openly discussed. Uh, Even treatment wasn't that well discussed. And, And being an attorney, loving books, of course, that was my first instinct. I took the reading list that Karen gave us as a resource, and I'm sure I bought every single book on that list. (laughs) Uh, I was searching for the answer. I'm an attorney. I wanted it to be logical. I wanted there to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I was determined that somewhere in one of these books, there was the the roadmap for how we as a couple should do this. But I didn't find it. I found a lot of very useful material about the disease of alcohol addiction. I found individual stories. But what I couldn't find was a book that shared the story of couples. When you have day one of sobriety, how do you talk to one another? Is it okay to go out for dinner? Is it okay to plan a cycling trip to Italy, you know, countryside? Yeah. Because there's all of the emotional work that goes on, but you still have to say good morning in the morning <laughs> and start your day. Yeah. <laughs> and Right, right. And so that was the resource that was missing for me was reading the stories of other couples and how they had navigated that. And we know the power of storytelling, the culture of using stories to model behavior. And and we read other people's stories and we learn from them. And then we can try out, we can like practice what they did and see if it works for us. And that was, that was what was missing. Because in recovery, when you are in a relationship, there is I am recovering, my partner is recovering, but our relationship is recovering. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think with addiction, like you were saying earlier, when one partner has a substance use disorder, there's a lot of mistrust, there's a lot of lying, there's hiding, there's all of that, which damages intimacy and connection and, you know, faith in the relationship and all that has to be repaired. It does. And there's a lot of emotional baggage. baggage. There are, there are many wounds that we've caused each other and it's not just the person who is battling their substance use disorder as someone loving them you you become overbearing nagging um mistrustful at times that you should trust and so there is a lot to to repair and let's not forget the intimacy part of it it's hard to be vulnerable to someone who um has not been trustworthy. So how do you yeah. reestablish well, that connection? Yeah, I think that that is definitely hard because you don't know, are they trustworthy? Are they going to be sober today? I don't know. And that can be really disconcerting. 
It can. And especially if you've been with someone that was so functional, where in the beginning you couldn't even tell that they were um, drinking. And now you wonder, I wondered if he was, his mood was a little off or maybe it was me, but I would try to scrutinize and analyze and you become so hyper vigilant. And that's not very healthy. Um, it wasn't healthy for me. But then let's not forget, life doesn't go on hold because you enter recovery. Life still happens. And right. in our case, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer within the first 12 months of Bill becoming sober. Wow. That was a lot to absorb. <laughs> yeah, ovarian- so now you're dealing with all of that stress and all of that heartache and repairing this relationship and and even a year in recovery still can be really fragile. It is. And it was a lot of uh, emotions for him to deal with as well, seeing the person he loves now being very ill. And he now had to become my supporter. And that was a new role for him. The process of recovery is it's such a deep process. And I remember leaving the hospital for surgery. And my my thought was, I need to reach out to his sister so that she checks in on him so that he doesn't relapse. So think of it, how insidious this disease is that my thinking was not about my own well-being, not because I was, uh, this is something that, uh, that should be applauded, quite to the contrary. That shows just how you become so codependent that my concern was for him and his sobriety and whether he would relapse rather than concentrating on myself being calm and ready to undergo surgery. You kind of lose yourself to, to the substance use disorder and you abandon yourself. And that's so, I think so many partners who are dealing with someone who is struggling with a substance use disorder experience that, you know, that, that self-abandonment. And, um, because, you know, at the same time you, you care about the person, but you're worried and, and it just takes all of your attention. It does. Some people are very public about their recovery. Some people are very private about their recovery. And for, for many people, it is also a, a journey early in the first year we were, pretty private about our recovery. Not many people knew. One of the, the techniques that we used in early recovery that was very useful for us is we, we created a storyline. And our storyline was that we were training for a century because we're avid cyclists. Everybody knows that. And so we were going to be very healthy. We were going to eat healthily. We were not going to consume alcohol. And we had this wonderful storyline that was very believable by our friends and our family. And that, that really helped. By the same token, because we weren't being public about it, when I faced my health challenge, I didn't know how Bill was going to get his support. And there were very few people who knew about what he was doing. And so I think that that is the moment that we started opening up a little bit more about the fact that we had multiple challenges at once. And I think what's important to remember is that that is the reality. When you enter recovery, it's all consuming. You need all your energy and your healing power, and you need a lot of time to heal. But life continues to happen. Yeah, And so reaching out is so important, creating that support network that will be there for you is really important. And I think, you know, reaching out and and sharing your story also mitigates all the other shame about it. I mean, it just becomes easier. You don't have to, you don't have to do it. And, and, you know, some people are going to understand, some people aren't, but, you know, you'll find the, the support out there that will come to your aid and and help you and and be along in that journey with you like in a way you're doing now on this podcast by sharing your story you're gonna you know which is which which is what one of the reasons i love doing this podcast but anyway so tell me a little bit how you guys started to work together in in healing the relationship well 
At the beginning, it was very much individual work. As I mentioned, Bill had joined a fellowship. He had a sponsor. He went to therapy. And I did the same. I joined uh, Al-Anon. I had a therapist. But that was individual work. And there was really no roadmap for how do we now do this work together. Now, for us, we were both executives where we had had to invent ourselves many times when we moved overseas and figure things out. So that was a very well-honed skill for us. And that's what we did. We went to some um, weekend couples retreat on communication and learn how to uh, make sure we were communicating more effectively. We learned new techniques, speaking in the I, I feel this as opposed to you. So we did a number of couples retreat and focusing on communication, focusing on trust. That really helped us. Then what we did also is that we structured our time. And that was, that's so important in early recovery because we, as we were talking about the lack of trust. And when you structure your time, it means that if Bill said he was going to have a coffee with a friend at a certain time, I could trust that that's what he was doing, not going and hiding somewhere and having a drink in a bar. And I, he would become accountable for coming back home for dinner. The same for me. I needed to focus on myself. So I signed up for a photography class. And he knew that on Thursday evening, I would be at this class. And so he needed to make sure that he had an activity or that that day he was feeling strong in his recovery because I wouldn't be at home. So what we started to do was create routine, structured our time. We developed some skills in the relationship in terms of communication. And then we also made sure that we got engaged in life. And this is where the writing comes in. Uh, he joined the, the Rotary and he joined um, groups where he could be part of the community and giving back because he has a lot of leadership skills. I wanted to explore creativity. That may sound odd for an attorney, but I did want to explore creativity. <laughs> <laughs> so I began to take a creative writing course and eventually created a memoir writing group. And we met in our home. And that led me to write my first book, The Boy with a Bamboo Heart. And so writing became a real passion. So as we progressed in our recovery and and you know, we both did a lot to to really save our relationship, all of that I've mentioned. And so as, as years went on, I felt like the that whole emotional pull wasn't there as much. When I could look back on our early recovery with compassion and understanding, and I started to think after I finished my first book, wouldn't it be great to write a second book? which is the book that I wanted to read when Bill came home from treatment of couples in recovery. And with, with all these, you know, as I'm listening to you talk with all these lessons that you guys learned and invested in, and that's what I'm really hearing. Like you guys chose to invest in the relationship and figure it out and find what works. We did it. The thing about addiction we have to remember is we're not dealing with the person. We're really dealing with the disease. And the person that I had fallen in love with, Bill, this really big-hearted, you know, generous, athletic, fun traveler, he was still there. He had just been strangled by his addiction. And as he entered recovery and found him, himself again and healed, that person that I'd fallen in love with, well, it, it surfaced. You know, I, I saw in him what I, was see, what I had seen in him when I fell in love with him. So I was really committed to making the relationship work because I could see him emerge. And, and we, mm -hmm. were, we began having fun together, laughter. We rebuild our intimacy, all of that. And so... Yes, we put a lot of work in our relationship, but I think it also came to us naturally because of our careers where we had been 
problem solvers in countries where the territory was unknown to us. And in a way, the whole addiction world was unknown to us. And we had to find our way. And we did. So that's something we wanted to share. And I wanted to share. And so I started looking for couples who would be willing to tell me or share with me their experience of recovery. And so I so you, so you started interviewing you started interviewing couples who had gone through what you had gone through and started collecting their stories. Exactly. So at first it was just very um informal there were conversations and often I would hear one side of the story but I didn't know the other person but nonetheless it just felt like our experiences are universal but yet we relate to them differently because when someone has, for example, a young child, I don't have a young child. So when Nadia talks about her struggle in her relationship, well, another young mother is going to relate to her story more than my story. And so that's when it got very interesting for me. I began to research. I wanted my book not I wanted it to be stories, but I wanted it to be relatable and to draw out some of the learnings we have about recovery. So I did a lot of research and I started talking to addiction counselors and people at Karen who had supported our recovery so that when I really was decided to write this book, I went into the interviews with um, specific questions and there I wanted to know how did couples particularly deal with their communication? How did they rebuild their trust? How did they talk to one another day to day? And I wanted to also illustrate that recovery is not linear. All of these couples, when you read their stories, whether it's Tim and Chuck or Larry and Sherry, all of us, we take steps forward and then we take steps backwards. And Bill never relapsed. But that doesn't mean our recovery didn't take steps backwards and trust and accountability. So that was the process. It it became one where I looked for couples that wanted to share their stories, that were willing to have me write about their stories, and that would allow me not to mask their identity. Because if we're going to break the stigma about this disease called addiction, We need to be able to step into the light and say, I have this disease, I'm in a recovery, and I'm not ashamed of it. Absolutely. I love that. And and being able to share your story and put it out there and show that hope is possible with, with some hard work and some direction, but other people have done it, you can do it. There's nothing, yeah, there's no shame in healing. Right. And so the couples, those were the requirements. They had to be willing to share their stories. And both partners had to be willing to share their stories and have their story told. So there are many couples that I interviewed, but not both were willing for very good reasons, different periods in their recovery professional concerns, all of that, which I fully respect. And I appreciate that they shared their story with me nonetheless. So in the book, there is a story called um, Tom and Carol. And this couple is what I call a blended couple. It's a composite of all those interviews and all the learnings from all the people I spoke to whose stories not specifically told in the book. And early readers of the book tell me that they often relate to the story of Tom and Carol, because really it is, it's all of us, right? And so it's very relatable in that sense. Um, But the other couples uh, that are featured in the book, uh, they are real people. They have spent time, and I've interviewed each of them individually, not together as a couple, so that I could really have their insights. So that was a really fun part of the book was after I interviewed them, I sat and wrote their story jointly. And then I shared it with them to have their permission, of course, to publish it. And so when the first time they read their story, 
was the first time um, that they saw their stories come together in that way. Oh my gosh, that must have been amazing to be able to see them see it that way. And, you know, sometimes it can be so hard to see our own transformation until it's reflected back to us. And that must have been amazing for them. It must have been amazing to be in that process, but amazing for them too. It was wonderful. And many of the couples either sent me an email or left me a voicemail getting off the plane because they dreaded on the plane and saying, you've captured the essence of who we are and our recovery. And I am, I'm so grateful for their courage to share their stories and their courage to have me publish it and that they've entrusted me with the telling of their story. So I'm very excited for other couples to be able to, to read these stories and just see how it is possible to recover. And it takes time. I mean, if there's two overarching messages of reading these stories that I hope the readers will take away is that one, it really takes a lot of time for a a relationship to recover. And two, each of us, each partner in the relationship has to do some full work. Each of us have to heal and grow. And then our relationship also needs work. We can't just do one person do work and the other one wait and say, oh, the relationship will just miraculously, you know, resolve itself. Yeah. And it, and it's, this book gives you a little bit of a roadmap to do that as a couple. It does. So recovery is a journey. And so is writing a book. I'm I'm not a professional author, although I have written two books now, but it is a journey. And although that sounds sometimes like a worn out cliche, I think it's very applicable to this book because after I'd written all of the stories and I I was privileged enough to have a, a space I could go to to write and I sketched out each of the couple's story stories on a wall so I would have their timelines and keep all the details straight. So I had this visual representation of all of the stories and then I also had, at the other end of my wall, all the research I had done that informed the writing of the story. So I can make sure that I would be highlighting parts of their stories that would be useful for readers so that the stories are really um, researched and formed. But then I realized I need someone to write the introduction because I am not an expert in the field. So I reached out to Dr. Jeremy Frank, who's a counselor and addiction specialist who has 25 plus years of experience and he wrote an introduction so I sketched out his introduction and then there was there was these overarching themes as I looked at the research his clinical experience and my storytelling and that was another aha moment of wow there really are some practices here that can guide couples to make the recovery process perhaps more um, understandable and perhaps a little less painful and certainly can give a good foundation to the recovery of the couple. So I became very excited about these, these um, connecting these dots. And I brought Dr. Frank into uh, my writing space and said, see, don't you agree? And he said, he saw it. And so we decided to try and develop a framework so we could really share it, what we saw. And so we just, we developed what we call the ASCENT approach. And it's an acronym. Uh, and so it really is six practices. They're not steps, they're practices, but that we saw couples that really uh, were able to successfully reclaim their relationship. They were practicing this without necessarily knowing. And it ties back to um, Dr. Frank's experience as a clinician. And it's certainly in the basis in the research that's been done in the area of addiction recovery. Um, so the ASAT model was born. That's awesome. So you were able to see these these trends and and make them more concrete so that 
others could access them. Exactly. And they really are practices that you can engage in regardless of which pathway to recovery you follow, whether you're in a fellowship, whether you do smart recovery, whether it's a spiritual journey for you. These are meant to supplement. And um, shall I go through the six practices quickly? Um, yeah, let's yeah lay, lay them out real real fast. Right, because they're they're very straightforward. The first one is the A, which is assess your readiness readiness to change, and this is really means that you have to be willing to grow. And are you ready to grow? And so to make it more practical, my husband early in his recovery, it was difficult for him to talk to me about his um, family of origin. His mother was an alcoholic. And of course, I wanted to know him. I wanted him to share and open up to me, but he wasn't ready. And so one of the stumbling blocks early on is I saw that as he didn't trust me. Right, and so right. I was pushing him too hard. If I had had this concept of assessing readiness, he could have said, you know, Chantal, I love you, but I'm just not ready to talk about this. Give me time. Um, right, so that's, yeah. That's the first one is being able as a couple to identify the areas that you may not be ready to address and the ones that you are. And then if you're ready to address rebuilding your intimacy, let's say, then you say, okay, what do we do? Do we plan a date night? You know, do we make sure the kids are out of the house sometimes? And you focus on what you're both ready to work on. So that's the A. The others are, are, again, very straightforward. So then you have structure your time. And I was talking about that earlier on. You know, when we structure our time, we create accountability and we create trust. And, and then when we sit together as a couple and we decide what we will do together and what we will do individually, we're respecting our, our own individuality, our personal interests. And we are also saying as a couple, we matter. So we set time aside to do some things together. Then a C is we create community. And we all know that recovery is creating connection because addiction is isolation. And so create your community is making some new acquaintances or friendships of people who don't necessarily know you from the past because you have a lot of emotional baggage from the past, you know, with the addictive behavior, et cetera. So when you make fresh connections, you have the opportunity to show up as you today in your recovery. So that's really important. Plus just the fun of connecting with people and and validating who you are as uh, a person in, in your sobriety. So that's that's a fun one. I love the one of creating community. Absolutely. And and you you move uh, out of the 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 shame and you make connections and you uh, build support. Right, exactly. And you surround yourself also with people that understand what you're going through. And it makes you, um, it, it helps you gain perspective on your, your own journey. And the skills that you practice with new people, you know, we listen to them more intently because they're new. We want to discover them. Um, we learn to set boundaries, knowing that some new people we meet, maybe we don't connect with as well. So we set some boundaries. When we practice those skills with new people, then we we bring that back into our relationship. Uh, we listen more deeply. We're able to stand up for ourselves a little bit more. So it's a good way to practice with other people. And then we bring those skills back into the relationship. So creating communities is very important. And we certainly know that about this particular time um, in this world pandemic, how much we crave our connections. So I think a lot yes, of people can relate yes. to this one. Absolutely. Um, and then engaging your life is really, what am I doing to grow as a person? And what are we doing to grow as a couple? That's being self-aware and what's important to me. Um, and making sure that we don't stay isolated, that we become part of the community, not only in the people, but in what we do. And and so can be learning to play tennis, you know, it can be helping with your community cleanup. It can be in my case, my husband joining the rotary or create a writing group. But you start engaging in activities where you develop and grow as a person. Right. 
And then the next one we hear a lot about in, in recovery, which is nurture your spirituality. And that's very individual. For some people, it is about their religious faith. Um, for other, um, such as myself, it really is about finding that inner peace, that inner tranquility, and looking to what I like to call the collective wisdom. Um, it's really reaching out of yourself and seeing, taking the wisdom in. Um, and if that's going to church for you, that's great. If it's meditating, that's great. What's important about that is it, it brings us calm and inner peace. And that's so important in a relationship because it takes away our reactivity. You know, those, those crazy arguments we end up with as a couple. When we have a spiritual base, we're able to just take that deep breath pause and not engage right away and that can make a world of difference in in developing your relationship and i i as as i'm listening to you outline these steps i i'm really thinking about how couples doing these together can rebuild that bond because it creates a structure in order to be able to start to have some of these difficult conversations, it creates a flow, it creates uh, a way for you to move forward. Exactly. And that's why the last one is so much fun, because that's treasure your partnership. And this is just mm -hmm. taking that time every day to, I, to either tell your partner how much you love them or point out an aspect of their personality that you appreciate or their behavior. This is where we create meaning. This is where we create that special bond that is unique to me and my husband. It can be our terms of endearment. You create the meaning to your love. And there's so many ways to do that. But sometimes in the chaos of our busy lives, you know, we forget to do that. So my husband and I, we've developed this whole little personal language. We say, for example, it's time for jungle time. And you'll say, well, what's jungle time? Well, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know. It's for my husband and I, it's our private, you know, it's like we speak another language. It's our language of love. And, and jungle time means, you know, we're just going to go and have fun together. We're going to go have some intimate fun together, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I love that. I, I, that's such a, a, a great concept because I think you lose all of these steps especially that last one, treasuring your, you know, treasuring each other, you lose all those steps in addiction. You, you, you know, when, when the substance use disorder is, is manifesting itself in the relationship, those things disappear and you almost in some ways don't know they're gone. I don't know if that makes sense. You have to re-engage them and build them. Right. And, and I call these practices, and so does um, Dr. Frank, they're practices or habits because they're not cumulative. You know, they're not a step program. And you can do as many of these. You can be structuring your time and creating your community at once, or you can focus on one. And what I like about these practices, as I mentioned earlier, my husband and I now have 12 years of recovery, which is fantastic. But even today, when we start feeling that tension where we're starting to have, you know, that, that little rub you can have as a couple or sometimes big rub, we take a step back and we say, what's going on? And most often, each of us has not been focusing on one of these practices. And just recently with the pandemic, you know, for me, nurturing spirituality is so much about being in nature and having that time to breathe and meditate in nature. And with the pandemic, I just haven't been doing that as much. And when I realized that, it was as simple as taking some time and going for a hike. And it's, that was about me and my spirituality. But it very clearly impacted how I was interacting with Bill. And for yeah. him, it's you know engaging in community. I mean, he really loved to engage in his community. And he had, for obvious reasons, couldn't do that right now. And so now he's, you know, he's picking up the phone more. He's talking to the neighbor more with his social distance, all of that. But our relationship found its ease again by each of us identifying 
which habits we sort of had been neglecting. So it's a useful tool, whether you're six months in recovery or 12 years in recovery. And that is the wisdom of all of these couples that I've interviewed. Uh, the, the first couple was 11 months into um, their journey when I interviewed them. And the last couple at the time was 11 years in recovery. And so we see that these are that the process of recovery is is it's a lifelong journey. Um, and I think these habits help us sustain it in in a positive way for our relationship. Absolutely. Chantal, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind and sharing all of this. I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. Before we go, I'd like to ask a question. If I actually have two questions for you. If there's a partner out there feeling lost, uh, what would you want to tell them? That's the first one. You know, one thing, if you could say one thing to them, what would you want to tell them? And then the second one is if there's a relationship out there, what would you want to tell the relationship? If you could tell them one thing. I would tell the person who's feeling lost to focus on themselves. Make sure that they attend to their own needs and are self-aware. It's so easy to lose perspective and focus on our partner and feel that all the problems lie over there. Um, and so I would encourage them to look internally and look to themselves and take responsibility for their happiness. Awesome. And what would you say to the relationship? To the relationship, I would say that's exactly it. There are three recoveries happening. There's me, there's you, and there's the relationship. And we're not all going to recover lockstep. And so find some time to focus on your relationship and understand that it will recover with attention and love and care to the relationship. And that may be different needs than you personally have or your partner has. So take a look at your relationship. What does your relationship need? Thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind. How, how can people find you? And if they, if they want more information about the book or you, where can they go? Well, the book, fortunately, now is available at all bookstores. Of course, it's on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble, and you can order it through your independent bookstore. I love supporting independent bookstores. If they want more information about me, I have a website. I'm sure you'll put it in the links, but it's www.chantalejauvin, so that's French.com, uh, so you can find me there. Of course, I'm on Facebook and uh, both as an author and there's a Facebook page for the book and an Instagram account. So I think you can find us pretty easily. Uh, the e-version of the book will be coming out probably next week or at most in 10 days. So if you don't find the e-version right away, it will be there very, very soon. And the title of your book, I'm just going to repeat it one more time, is Love Without Martinis, How Couples Build Healthy Relationships in Recovery Based on Real Stories. Chantal, thank you so much for coming on. Dwayne, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate having the opportunity to have this conversation around relationships. And thank you for all the work you do to take the stigma out of recovery. It's beautiful work you do. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 129. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is. I really appreciate it. It helps get the podcast a lot of exposure and gets this information out to people who could use it and benefit from it. Also, if you would like to continue the conversation, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addictive Mind podcast, click join, 
and continue the conversation online there as well. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.